You've probably seen those commercials or TV shows where, you know, somebody will be doing something crazy and they'll say, you know, don't try this at home, kids. I'm a professional, you know, that kind of stuff. So this is one of those messages where I would say, uh, don't try this at home, <laughs> meaning this is not a, a normal uh, way to uh, handle scripture. But this morning I want to uh, do something a little different and that is to get into kind of our Holy Trinity family stuff uh, in and through this text by being as true as, as we can to the text, but it just simply to say that this text wasn't written to Holy Trinity Church in January of 14, uh, and it has a meaning of its own, and uh, just to say that uh, we get what's going on there. But I think that there are some cues in this text that we can take for our common life by endeavoring to live in continuity with the story that's being told here in this text, and with the development of disciples of Jesus that we see arising in this text and how they are learning the way of servant love. Now in our antiphonal psalm this morning, we heard that the psalmist is very much aware of living in continuity with some story and announcing uh, what's going on. Uh, normally we would read uh, during this week, it's in the lectionary, one of the readings is um, Isaiah 49. And Isaiah 49 tells us this story, and I want you to try to picture this, a story that begins with God creating the heavens and the earth, and then calling into covenant, and I mean that kind of in quotes covenant, calling into covenant the first humans, Adam and Eve, and saying to them, look at this amazing new creation, come rule and reign with me in this, be my cooperative friends. And then, you know, the story goes south and the flood and, the, you know, the whole story goes south again and then the flood. And then in Genesis 12, you have the calling of Abraham. God says to Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation and I'm gonna bless you and protect you and watch over you and provide for you. If anyone comes against you, I'll come against them. That, Genesis 12, three says, you might be a blessing to the whole earth. But you know the rest of the Old Testament, that goes south too. And you've got all the ups and downs of Israel's history. But, so, uh, but Isaiah 49 says there will come a time when someone will arise from Israel who will do several things. Renew Israel, kind of fix what's broken about her. Be on the earth all that Israel was supposed to be. So if you can picture something like a funnel, this big nation of Israel, all the hopes and dreams of Israel at some point come down to literally the human shoulders of Jesus. The one who went out to the river and they got wet. Um, the shoulders on which John, who's writing this gospel, laid his head, those shoulders. The whole fulfillment of Israel's story comes down onto Jesus in fulfillment and in completion, not just fulfillment in, see I told you my prophecies would come true, but fulfillment in the sense of God's whole intention to not just save and rescue and redeem and restore Israel, and not merely to fulfill prophetic promises in the way we might you know, think of it doctrinally, but thirdly, that the whole earth would be saved, that Jews and Gentiles alike would be saved. 
So when this servant comes into public, as Isaiah 49 calls him in Isaiah 53, you know, which we would read in more of a Lenten and Easter time, when this servant comes into public, John points him out. And the first thing that I think we can see in this text that alerts us to something not only for our lives but for Holy Trinity as a community is that it's very clear through this text and others that the thing to which John the Baptist was most self-conscious in his life was obedience. And that's just not a very fun word these days. <laughs> I can remember when I was a kid and first a Christian, you know, in this Jesus movement, Calvary Chapel scene, that was actually a very common word. We were all very, very much aware of trying to be obedient to this text, to the person of God, to the story that's told in this text. And I don't know exactly what's happened over the last 35 or 40 years, but that word has fallen out of favor a little bit, and I just wanna suggest it's a perfectly good word. Um, because again, I would, I would encourage you not to think of it as obedience to a stop sign, or obedience to the IRS tax code but go back to the first humans. Go back to your first parents who were not invited into the keeping of a code, but were invited to be the cooperative friends of the one true creator God and to work with him. And so if you've got a him working, all we're trying to do is align ourselves with that. And to not do so, to be doing something else, is to be living in disobedience. But I would invite you to recapture this term in its relational sense, and not merely in its sort of doctrinal or religious or legalistic sense, but rather there is a person, God, who is inviting us to live in rhythm with what he's up to. And so John apparently knew that he had a very specific calling, that it was preparatory, that it was, it was humble. Remember John says later, um, uh, I think it's in John 3.30, he says, I must decrease, that he must increase. See, to hear the obedience in that, the humble obedience. And so John knew that that was his very specific vocation in life. And also to challenge others to align themselves with the will of God too. In other words, what John's doing at the river is saying, hey, the obedience that I'm showing here and that I'm manifesting, I'm inviting you to rethink your life. And if this is what God is doing, everybody look at me. John's saying, I'm inviting you to look at what's happening in your life and see if it's in anywhere out of rhythm. And, and if it is, this is a very important point in time where God is not only inviting his people to realign themselves with him, but providing a way to do it in the sending of the Son, and very soon the sending of the Holy Spirit. And that he will actually give us the capacity, the, the capability to do this. And so John is trying to baptize them into, again I use the word in, kind of in quotes, a new covenant way of being. Well, next the text tells us that John then actually does point out the Lamb of God and says, look, he, here is the one who takes away the sin of the world. And then this leads some of them to begin to follow Jesus, some of John's hearers. Well, when Jesus sees some of them following, he turns to them and says to them, what are you seeking? And what I want you to hear in that this morning, if you have your Bible with you, you can underline it, or in your bulletin, you can underline it. What I want you to hear in that question from Jesus, what are you seeking? 
is two things. Invitation, obviously, but also examination. For those of you who are familiar with it, a a little tinge of sort of proto-ignation stuff. (laughs) A little examination. What are you seeking? It is an invitation, and and he'll make the invitation really explicit uh, in in a couple of verses, you know, come follow me. But here, there's just a little bit of a check. Like, okay, what are you hearing in John? You know, what are you seeing happening down there at the river? What's your sense of Yahweh? What's your sense of what it means to be Israel? It's an invitation to begin to examine what you might say is their default settings or to examine the conventional wisdom that maybe they're aware of from the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the various Jewish sects, the Herodians, the Zealots, the Quietists, the Pietists. See, God is beginning to get people to to open their minds to something really brand new exploding on the earth, a striking new appearance of something that's beginning to explode on the earth. So then they say to him, well, where are you staying? And he says to them, come, here's the invitation, the direct invitation, come and you'll see. And so they came and they saw and they stayed. Now, in a brief sermon, I can't say too much about John, but one of the things that's known about John is that he's way more mystical and metaphorical than the three other synoptic writers. And so when he says this kind of stuff, they came, they saw, and they stayed even though they were just staying at his house, like that's the literal meaning of the text, John is trying to alert us here that discipleship is starting to happen and that a part of discipleship is coming, seeing what's real, letting it challenge your present worldview, your present sense of what's true and real about life, and then learning to stay. And of course, he makes this explicitly clear in John 15, where he talks about how, how Christian discipleship to Jesus is at its heart a dependency on him where one abides or remains in him the way a branch abides to a vine. So this is the beginning of that kind of thought coming out in John's gospel. Well, if you look at your text, then we read that Jesus then actually calls some of his first disciples. And I think on just a pure literary level, what John's doing here is not unlike what you see happening in the opening few scenes of a movie or the opening couple scenes in a play or a novel is you're getting, you're getting introduced to the characters. I mean, just on a literary level, you're getting introduced to, hey, there are some more characters in this story besides John the Baptist and Jesus. And so they began to follow him, kind of wanting to take a closer look at this one that's being called Messiah, but what they didn't realize is that Jesus was also looking for them. And you know what might really make the moments of your life and your worship a bit more robust? Is to add to your notions that you're not just looking for Jesus, in your reading of the Bible, whatever you do in your quiet time, whatever your present spiritual practices are, that it's not just that you're looking for Jesus, but that Jesus is looking for you, always. Delight in being present to your life. Can you even take that in? He delights in being present to your life. He actually loves you. Actually thinks of you as his friend and actually wants a real, live, interactive, conversational relationship. 
And that that wasn't just true here, but John's alerting us that this is true of Jesus' nature, is that he's always looking for followers, for cooperative friends, and when he finds them, he calls them, and then we receive, as we hear Jesus' voice, our one true vocation in life. We hear that what it actually means to be human, in addition to and maybe transcending all else that it means to be human, it means to follow Jesus. And so what these disciples were beginning to profess and experience, it was gonna take years to be worked out and years to work into their souls and, and years to work outward so that others experienced their transformation for their good. And this alerts us then to what we see all in the synoptics, that is the learning curve of the disciples who regularly misunderstood Jesus who regularly couldn't figure out what he was saying, would say, this is a hard saying, we don't get it. Or how come last time you told us to take a purse and this time we can't take a purse? And you know, you just all those times, and you can think now in the synoptic gospels where the disciples didn't get Jesus, but this was their vocation. Their vocation was to be an apprentice to Jesus, to actually go on a learning curve with him. So when I think about us, when I just, I just sat with this this week and, and thought about us and knowing that we're gonna have this you know, brief meeting after church, I th- I, for me at least, and, and I would hope that this kind of speaks for all of us, but at least for me, that in Holy Trinity, this is, I actually have very simple vision for this church. I don't have a vision for, you know, kind of activistic, programmatic driven stuff. I'm not down on that stuff, but it's just really not my vision. And I guess if it came to pass, some of that would be okay. You know, we're not a single issue church, you know, we're not like the anti-abortion church or we're not the, you know, immigration church or whatever. We're not a single issue church like a, a lot of churches are. If I've had anything that's kind of a, conventionalism default position in my head the last few years, it arises out of this text that we're seeking Jesus. And we're seeking his gentle peace and gracious peace. And we're trying to find our one true vocation as followers of Jesus and then live obediently into it. It's really just that simple. I mean, I have a very rich and full life. I'm pastor of Holy Trinity. I'm the bishop over a nationwide church planning movement, plus everything else it means to be a bishop. I'm the director of a foundation, author, professor, husband, father. I have a very rich and full life. But I place my hands over my heart And I say to you, my truest sense of myself is none of that. My truest sense of myself is, what I'm most conscious of is that I am a follower of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, I try to be the best bishop I can, the best friend I can be, the best pastor I can be, but that all flows out of a very deep, settled thing in me that my one true vocation is to give myself to the one true Lord of the universe and be his cooperative friend. That way, when I'm acting in any of those other roles, I'm acting in congruence 
with this Lamb of God and the Spirit who has come to the church. So as we're trying to live obediently into this calling, we're trying to come, as John said, and see, as John said, via quietness and taking pauses from our life and learning to be attentive and getting on the learning curve of apprenticeship to Jesus. Because to see Jesus, you know, John points him out today, to see him pointed out, you have to be able to see. And to be able to see means that distractions have to be eliminated and that one needs space. Because here's the deal as I've experienced it. The movements of the spirit in your life are much more like butterflies than they are like bulldozers. I mean, there's the occasional Moses, you know, who the earth shakes and burning bushes and all that. And there's the occasional Apostle Paul and those things happen. But there are exceptions to the rule. The rule is learn to pay attention. Learn to be alert. Because God is rarely a cosmic bully. His approaches to us are much more like butterflies where if we want really interaction with that butterfly, it requires a fundamental stillness. That's what this is actually like, and that's why, and I was just sitting here this morning thinking, I don't think we're there yet. I, I started feeling a few months ago that we're on like a five-year learning curve, which would mean like the rest of this sort of calendar year, where I don't even think we've yet found our personality totally as a people, exactly what it is that we're supposed to be doing and trying to create a space of pause, attentiveness, reflection, that kind of thing where people can come into a physical space and find a pause for their crazy life and all the stuff going on in their head such that they might experience here, behold, the Lamb of God. Hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them. And this challenges me. And I think it challenges us, and I think it's a huge challenge in the culture of Orange County. I think it's completely counterintuitive. Absolutely completely counterintuitive. You don't know how many friends who have said to me over the last three or four years, Hunter, what the heck are you doing? Why don't you just, you know, go hire a great band and rent a room and preach and like, you know, you'd have this really big church and I just, I don't know, I can't do it. It's just something in me, I can't do it. I feel like there's this other calling that we're learning to live into for the sake of others. So this probably makes it uh, way too big, but I just happened to see this quote again this morning, and certainly I would never uh, liken what we're trying to do here with the influence that someone like Martin Luther King had. But I was reading a little something from Andrew Young. Do you remember that name? Uh, it It was on everybody's radar screen 25 or 30 years ago. He was one of, if not the closest confidant to MLK. Um, And in his biography, he says this. You know, if you you think of Martin Luther, maybe a headline would be, here's how to change the world without killing anyone. So Andrew Young writes, we were struggling with history that we didn't even understand. But somehow by the grace of God, it came out right. And I don't know, I just resonate with that. I feel like I'm struggling with something here that I myself don't understand. And I'm just praying this <laughs> somehow, this all turns out all right. He says, we're trying to change the world, not by any means necessary, but by being dedicated to loving our enemies and praying for those who persecuted us. 
See how out of phase that was with the normal notions of political power and, and racial power and that kind of stuff? Said that's hard to believe in this day and age. Time after time, our nonviolent commitment was put to the test. But that was one test we passed, even in extremely difficult circumstances. And I just for myself feel a similar thing. Like I'm wrestling with a, a period in human history and wrestling with trying to figure out something different to contribute to this. And I think it's beginning to come clear little by little, week after week, month after month as we're together. Um, but I still think we have a place to go. I just want you to know this morning from this text, where we're always going is, come, see, and learn to abide. Learn to stay. Just shh. And let the butterfly of the spirit do his thing. And if you need a bulldozer occasionally, God will probably provide it. But normally he won't scream and yell at you. He's not an angry parent. He's your creator who wants relationship with you. He wants to work with you for your good, not to use you, for your good, to find out what it means to be truly human for the sake of others. Amen.